That was awesome. Uh, thank you for that. That was really, really fun to listen to. Um, welcome to Lower Town. Glad you're, glad you're here. A um, couple things before we, we get into the text again. Um, I want to uh, point out a few people uh, that are they're going to be seeing around, um, but I want to point out Chaz. All right, Chaz, raise your hand. You don't need to stand up or come up or anything. Uh, Chaz is entering into uh, year one, Trek One LDI intern, um, which is fun, which is exactly where I was uh, five years ago. No, well, that was you sitting right there. Not in his pew, but yeah. Uh, and then Nolan Bauer, he's walking down the... Uh, Looking now, he, he's gonna be around as well. So they're gonna be planning some events uh, and that kind of thing, uh, just kind of lighten my load a little bit, and um, it's fun to be able to uh, have them around. And, and a couple of the uh, uh, female uh, LDIers have also volunteered to plan some things, and so looking looking forward to having them around. Chaz actually made a really really beautiful uh, slide uh, for the men's breakfast, but uh, the internet wasn't working, and so Brendan made that on the spot tonight. So two very talented. People they're making slides, so thank you for doing that. Um, anyways, we got men's breakfast coming up. Looking forward to that. We're going to start at 6:30. Feel free to stay as late as you can. A lot of us got to leave, but um, feel free to hang out and, and just get to know each other and take some time this week to share some prayer requests, that kind of thing. And anyways, that's that. So um, there's also no outline um, at all because uh, I just had a crazy day. Um, it was actually my father-in-law, uh, his last day uh, preaching. And so we, my wife and I and, and our little boy went um, to his church, and he, he started the church and has been there for 35 years, uh, which is really something, uh, it's, it really is amazing. The, the pastors just don't normally stick it out that long. Um, the thick and the thin and, and seeing families come and go and, and losing that. And, and I thought, wow, that's almost as long as we've been in Exodus, but not, not quite. Um, <laughs> But uh, I'm thankful for my father-in-law. It was kind of, um, they, were, they had this thing tonight. I, my wife is still there. And, and uh, could you turn me down just a bit? I feel like I'm a little hot. Is that possible? Just turn me down a hair? Okay. Because I'm going to start yelling. You know what I'm saying? Um, so anyway, she, she's still out there. And they, she plays the violin. And so her, her sisters all do. So they you know, played some music like they used to do when they were little girls. And they grew up, right? And my, my wife the only church she ever went to was that church until we got married, and I took her away from that church, right? So um, it, it's been, it, their family means a lot um, and everything that he's done. So anyways, I went there this morning and, and really had a good time hearing, hearing him preach from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. It's called Ambassador Baptist Church, and that is how we are to be ambassadors, and, and it was just a, a blessing to be part of that uh, with them. So Anyways, no outline, but I was kind of bummed out because it's actually a really good outline uh, this time. So, but sorry, you'll never know um, what it's going to be like, but it is going to be up on the screen. This is week 31, which is wild, and so just real quick before I, I jump into this, I will be here next week and preach week 32, um, and then uh, Joel Stegman, our church planning resident, will be here the following week, and that's it. Like, that's it. There's right now, and then two more weeks of Exodus. And then we're going to be starting a new sermon series, just really focusing on the gospel, and it's just called I'm Okay in Jesus, um, and looking forward to walking through that and what that means. I'm going to spend one week, our first week, uh, that I'm back. Uh, I actually have a wedding that day on a Sunday. Who gets married on a Sunday? I don't know, but someone did. Um, it's a, he's actually a good friend of mine. Um, anyways, so I'm going to be driving a few hours to go to this wedding and, 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 and officiating that, which I'm thankful and have the opportunity to do that. Um, but that next week will actually be our one-year anniversary of being here in Lower Town, which is pretty, pretty exciting. So we'll, we'll buy some cakes 
and uh, something. We're going to party. But that week, uh, I'm going to really just spend a week kind of casting vision. Um, what, what were some things that I think maybe we've done well? Uh, what's the, what are some things that, that I've failed at as your pastor? And so what can we, what can we do moving forward now in this next year of, of reaching this neighborhood and this community and telling them the good news about Jesus Christ and how the gospel really does change lives and it is the hope of the world? And, um, and I believe that. So anyways, that's that. This week is a, a, a huge step backward. And if you've been with us at all in the book of Exodus, that, that God shows up and powerfully displays something. And it just, it just the whole book just seems like one step forward, two steps back. Uh, but this one is going to be a, 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 like, a, like, a, like the big one, right? This is going to be a really bad, huge step backward. And there's going to be a lot of text tonight, um, and, and I'm reading several commentaries, but um, I really think that this is, this is really helpful. It's, but it's not law, huh? huh? Yeah? Huh? That's exciting. Uh, we're actually going to be getting back into the narrative a little bit more, and so uh, let's just start with this huge step backward. And I want to read even before I get to the... Uh, the text from Peter N. says this, chapters 32 through 34 cannot be separated. I mean, we, we do, because when they go through chapter 33, 6, but just follow me here, okay? It says they cannot be separated without affecting the integrity of the whole. To chop up this narrative into smaller units, however convenient, now thanks, Peter, yeah, we know, uh, will only disrupt the message they are intended to convey. But this part we will cover. Rebellion, mediation, and restoration, that's all going to be there. And that was the outline. See, the outline was really good, and I didn't even make it. But this guy, this he's Peter, Peter guy. Hence, we must proceed as we have with the plagues, the law, and the tabernacle, that is in his commentary, by dealing with them in large amounts of material in one block. And we've done our best to do that uh, going through this sermon series. But there's, you, you, you know, it's a lot of text some weeks, and it's just hard to even read through it, let alone teach it, and then actually apply it to what does this mean to us today? How in the world does this point to Jesus at all? Um, and so uh, it takes some time. So here we go. Point number one here is, is rebellion. Starting in chapter 32, verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, all right, so long, going back, it says that he went up there for 40 days. Um, 40 days in the Old Testament. It's, it's used numerous amounts of times. Of the, uh, it's used at Noah and the ark. It's used here. Uh, it's used um, a couple other places. <laughs> I'm drawing blanks. I think there's four or five uses of 40, 40 nights, but it doesn't actually always mean specifically 40 nights. It could just mean a long period of time. It could mean, uh, you know, uh, yeah, exactly 40 days, but it could also mean less than that. So just, it was just, it's a Hebrew uh, thing for, for us, just, just an indefinite or dozens and dozens of days, right? It was, it's not like a very specific, if I say dozens and dozens, you're not like, oh, it's 24. You, went, you were gone for 24 days. It's not how we communicate. It's the same here, okay? But, but it was a while, okay, that, that Moses was gone. He's up on this mountain, and a couple of commentaries I was reading was that it took Moses seven days to get up and down this mountain each time. And remember, several weeks ago, it was like he went up and down the mountain like eight times in one chapter, and it's like, yeah, that old man got a workout, um, okay? So it, so it took some time uh, of him doing this, and so... Uh, that's that. So then he says, they gathered around Aaron. Okay, Aaron is the high priest. Aaron is Moses' brother, and they gather around him. Every other time gathered around is used, at least by Moses in the Pentateuch, it's actually a negative thing. Right? They gather around to consume, or they gather around to attack, whatever it may be. They're, they're, com they're completely and utterly surrounded 
That's what they're doing to the high priest, to Aaron, to, to Moses, his brother, surrounding him, right? Coming, coming on to him, all right? And so that's what happens. And then they say this, come and make gods with us who will go before us. What? You, like you can still see the fiery furnace burning on top of the mountain that is Yahweh. Moses is up there and you want gods who will go before you. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him, right? So they're saying, he's gone. We don't know what's going on. We need some new gods, right? Oh, okay, you gotta remember, they're still eating manna, okay? So this Yahweh, this God that they don't even recognize anymore, and this fellow Moses, right? They're literally picking up cookies and donuts off of the ground, and they're saying, yeah, well, I don't want that. And then in the evening, they're having quail, saying, ah, make us new gods. Because we don't know what's going on with, with Moses. And there would have been a strong connection with Moses and who he was. And, and, but they're saying, he's gone. All right, one uh, commentary, Doug Stewart says this. We should remember that just a few months prior to this incident, the Israelites and other ethnic groups among them were still living in Egypt, deeply influenced by its pagan culture just as they had been for hundreds of years. That's all they knew, right, was, was idol worship. They had all grown up in society, developed into a religious system and a way of life known as idolatry. And they were understandably, though by no means excusably, not yet used to the rigorous anti-idolatry demands of Yahweh's covenant with them. Because the attractions of idolatry for them were so strong and their recent stance against it so derivative and new, they were, in fact, not at all genuinely committed to its eradication in their beliefs and practices as this present passage demonstrates all too clearly. All right, Yahweh says, you're not gonna make any images, not gonna have any graven gods, not gonna happen, you're gonna have any other gods before me, but they weren't used to that. They're used to just, oh, this God didn't do the thing I wanted, right? I, I performed this sacrifice and, and my plants didn't grow. Then I got to go pray to this God, whatever it may be. And that was their culture. Again, not excusable because they're, they're like literally eating the abundance of what Yahweh is providing for them. Moving on here. Aaron answered them. All right, so the high priest, Moses' brother, answers them. Take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and he took what they handed to him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it, fashioning it with a tool. All right, so, so the high priest takes tools, whether it was a, a mold that he puts it into or he formed it with these tools. The language is a little ambiguous, but, but he clearly worked on this. They said, then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. All right, I, how many times have we used that phrase? Not we. How many times has Yahweh said that they may know that I am the God, I am Yahweh who brought them up out of Egypt? You want to know how many times? 15 times. 15 times Yahweh has said that exact phrase, and now here the Israelites are saying, these are your gods. These are the gods. This is the God who brought you up out of, out of Egypt. I, like that's, a, that's a huge step backward. Right? That, that's not like, oh, oops, <laughs> I did it again. No, this is like, no, you... You, you, you messed up on this one. And after all we just studied and learned about this holy God, right, you gotta, man, like, I know we're not God and we can't even imagine what that would be like, but we've all been betrayed by somebody. We've all been hurt by somebody. And just that, 
that, that fuming, vengeful anger that we feel as human beings, what would it be like, right, for something that I've created and I've blessed and I've given everything to to say, I, I, I don't want you. I don't want you anymore. I'd be like my one and a half year old just being like, Dad, you're terrible. I made you, right? You don't get to tell me that. Not at one and a half, you don't. He wouldn't, because he can't talk, but. All right. This is interesting. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf. We'll talk more about this altar here in a minute. But he builds this altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh. Okay, so what's happening here? Aaron is thinking, I think, I think I can get off the hook for this, right? I think I can build this, this false god, this idol. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna say this idol represents Yahweh, right? So we're still gonna do things biblically. We're gonna have these festivals that we're supposed to be having in fellowship with one another and, and, and these sacrifices, but we're gonna do it in front of this graven image, right? So he's saying, no, I'm good. You said don't have any other gods before you. That was your number one. I'm not breaking that law. You are my God, right? That's what Aaron's saying. But then this. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings, right? Good things. They just learned about that in the law that God gave Moses to them. And afterwards, they sat down to eat and to drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Some of you, if you, if some of you maybe have grew up in the church or maybe your translations are different, there's, there's nothing sexual here, okay? So don't, sometimes people for some reason are saying, oh yeah, that was just some, some big orgy. It's not here. That happens in, in Deuteronomy, <laughs> okay? But not, but not here, okay? Um, okay, so just, just to clear, clear the air on that. Um, okay, but what do they do? They make a graven image, which God specifically said, don't do that. And last week I, I preached on that, right? Just we are his image bearers. So we don't create images. We are his image bearers. And so to create something that represents Yahweh is, is blasphemous. And God can't accept that. And so idol worship, how it worked, right? They'd, they'd have this idol or this calf or whatever it was, not just Israel, but not in this just moment, but a lot of cultures, that when they would have their idol or their temple to some goddess or deity or whatever, they would have, and they would have the sacrifice, the altar right in front of it. Why? Because they said that if they believed that this animal or this god or goddess, whatever it was, could only know that a sacrifice was happening if it was going on right in front of them, right? They had to have direct line eyesight to this sacrifice that was happening, all right? But God sets it up in a completely different structure. In the temple, right, you've got the innermost holy of holies with the Ark of the Covenant the, that, that showed and where God's manifestation of his glory would rest on. And then you've got this veil, this curtain, and then you've got another curtain, and then you've got the altar. This was completely contrary to any other kind of worship in the day, right? And God was saying, even just symbolically here is, I don't need to see the sacrifice. Why? Because I see it. I'm everywhere. I'm not represented by the Ark of the Covenant. My glory may hover over it, but trust me, I'm, I'm everywhere and I see everything. Like, <laughs> I just, like Woody from Toy Story. I, for some reason, that just popped in my head. He's more powerful than Woody from Toy Story. <laughs> All right, moving on, Exodus 32, verse seven. Then Yahweh said to Moses, go, go down. Right, okay, here's another example. God sees everything. Go down 
because your people who you brought up out of Egypt, right? I, I thought that was like, whoa, Yahweh's getting a little like passive aggressive here. That's not what happens. It was actually um, very common. And he's, he's done this multiple other times and places where uh, it's Moses who parts the Red Sea or Moses does this thing and brings them out of Egypt or whatever. So it's not like this like, oh, they're your, this is your problem. It's not what he's doing. It's just, he's just saying, go down because your people, right? You're the leader of them uh, who you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt, not unsalvageable, but they've been corrupted. They have been quick to turn away from what I have commanded them. You think? It hasn't even been a month. All right, and it ended with them saying, yes, we will obey everything that you just said. It hasn't even been a month. They have been quick to turn away from what I have commanded them and have made for themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bound down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt, right? Like, I mean, just, this is now Yahweh repeating what the Israelites have said. Doug Stewart says this, since God himself had chosen his ways of personal manifestation in the past, that is fire, smoke, pillar, overpowering voice, the people's choice of a dumb idol who could do no, none of these things over the living God was also a rejection of his methods of demonstrating his presence. It's not just a rejection of who Yahweh is, but it's a rejection of how Yahweh says he's going to show himself in front of them, and it's a rejection of all the commands that he's given them, saying, we don't want to do that. A God who would let them live, uh, sorry, excuse me, they, what, they, what they could see and touch at their convenience was what they wanted. A God who would let them live as they wished and have a good time when they wanted to, and who would not impose his covenant requirements on them. Theirs was a foolish choice reflecting badly on any people so self-absorbed and self-destructive as to make it. That's where we're at. Yahweh says this, I have seen these people, and I don't mean to get like silly or dumb, but uh, uh, Avatar, if you've seen it, all right, it was just kind of this thing in this movie. You know, it's funny. this is a side note. It has nothing to do with this. It has nothing. I do this a lot. Take tangent. That's not, not part of the sermon. Um, when my wife and I went to go see this in the theaters, um, I remember we walked out, and, and we kind of had this expression of, what, of what, what we were talking about last week, of this, this human being that was created in God's image literally invented new animals and worlds and plants. It was, to me, it was mind-blowing. And then the next, the next week, my wife and I were listening to a sermon, and I won't name names because you might know the guy, and he was like, this Avatar movie is just witchcraft and demon worship. And I was like, whoa, I walked out like glorifying God. You're telling me it's demon worship. Maybe it is, but I didn't see it. Anyways, in the movie, they have this thing, right, where they, they, they say this phrase, I see you. And it's not just I'm looking at you, but I, I know you. Everything about you, like I, I know who you are as a, as a person, but they're not people, they're aliens, but you know the point. And that's what God is saying here. He's not just saying, I, I see Israel. He's I, listen, I know them. I really know my people. I have seen these people. Yahweh said to Moses, they are a stiff-necked people. They are proud and arrogant people. And I love this phrase here. Yahweh says, most powerful, well, he is, the most, he's God, 
the God, one and only true God, who's demonstrated his power and authority over nature, over animals, over weather, over human beings, over anything, just got done destroying the false gods of the Egyptians. And he goes to Moses and he says, now leave me alone. All right? So now Moses, leave me alone. So that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. And then I will make you, Moses, a great nation. All right? Got him? Leave me alone. Because guess what? If you leave me alone, Moses, I'm going to make you a great nation. All right? Let's read into what the most powerful being and creator of the universe is saying here. And saying, now leave me alone, God made a rhetorical demand. Right? I love that. It's not a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical demand. He was challenging Moses rather than commanding him. Moses had no power to stop God from doing anything. So there would have been no need, whatever, for God to ask permission of Moses to do something through the statement, leave me alone. Rather, it was a rhetorical way of saying to Moses, here's what I will do unless you intervene. For God to announce to a prophet, Moses being the paradigm for all future prophets, his intention to do something as a way of involving intercession has many parallels, the most foremost perhaps being those of Amos. And if you're not familiar with Amos, it's okay, he's gonna kind of explain it. Where God showed Amos things that he was planning to do by way of judgment upon Israel, and then in response to Amos, intercession relented. Right, so there's a paradigm. There's something that God is doing with this prophet Moses, saying, hey, I'm asking you to do something. If you do it, people can relent, they can repent. He goes on to say, in that context, he, um, Amos was clearly involved, oh, sorry, God was clearly involving Amos to intercede so that he, God, might relent. A similarly prominent example is found in Jonah's re uh, required announcement that Nineveh would be destroyed, oh, there it is, Jonah, or, uh, yeah, Jonah, in 40 days. A message Jonah regularly gave because he knew that it represented an invitation to repent and not an irreversible condemnation. Right In that story, Yahweh shows up to, 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 to Jonah and says, go preach to them a message of repentance. If not, I'm going to destroy them. Like, I'm going to destroy these people. And what's Jonah do? He pouts about it. Why? Because he knows this is how God acts. He knows that God is a forgiving God. And then he actually responds to humans when they choose him. He responds in grace and mercy. So that's what's happening here with Moses. And so now we have this mediation, right? Somebody interceding on someone else's behalf, going to now God the Father. I'm going to mediate. I'm going to calm this down. You've got this, this party over here that's in the fault, Israelites, and Moses saying, I'm going to, I'm going to fix this. I think, we can, I think we can do this. They're not completely unsalvageable. But Moses sought favor in Yahweh, uh, it's not the favor of Yahweh, his God. Yahweh, he said. Why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt? Right? It's, it's, not, it's not that language again. Okay? Who you brought out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Right? And this one now, right? This is like, 
remember, okay? God doesn't need to remember, he knows it. But he's saying, remember. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, to whom you swore by your own self, right? Remember you made a promise with yourself that you weren't gonna destroy these people? Remember when you said that? I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He's now quoting Yahweh. So he's talking to Yahweh, like quoting him. Remember, this is what you said. I'll, I'll tell you what you said. And I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then Yahweh relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. That human responses matter. They really matter to God. He goes on, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, and they were inscribed on both, both sides, front and back. Uh, it was kind of interesting. Not, that's not like a, uh, a weird thing. Like that was in, in ancient cultures, they would often do that. You know, materials were limited, and so they would do that. But it was also interesting that they're saying front and back as to show there's no room to add anything. Right? You can't like chalk off a corner of it. Just, you can't add, you can't take away. This is what God has said front and back, and the tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved in the tablets. And when Joshua, so Joshua was kind of up on the mountain with Moses, okay, so, but he stayed out. He didn't go into this fiery furnacey cloud. Joshua stays back, but Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, and he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. All right, and Moses replied, and this is kind of vague and ambiguous, because Moses knows what's going on. God just told him. Joshua doesn't know what's going on, right? And he says, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It's not a singing, right? It's, it's the sound of, 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 of partying and sacrifice that's loud. It's not war, right? And Moses, Moses knows this. When Moses approached the camp <laughs> and he sees the calf and the dancing, his anger burned Right, I'm pretty sure that moment, so that's a righteous anger that Moses has, seeing what's going on. Like, I, I just left you, and I left you with my brother, like the high priest. Like, what could have possibly happened in 30 days or whatever to make you switch like this? His anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. Again, symbolically here, what's he holding? He's holding the, the tablets of the covenant, and he's saying... I am symbolically showing you that you have broken the covenant. You have not obeyed what Yahweh has said, and so I'm gonna shatter these covenants in the bottom of the mountain. And he took the calf, I love this, like, oh, Moses. I wanna meet this guy someday. He took the calf, gold. He took the gold calf the people had made, and he burned it in the fire, and then he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it, right? Like, you're gonna literally taste your stupidity. Right? You're, you're, gonna, you're gonna taste the rejection that God has felt. And he said to Aaron, says to his brother, what did these people do to you that you led them in such a great sin? That's a good question. Like, what happened? Do not be angry with me, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. And they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. All right, let's go back. Is that what happened? 
When the people saw that Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, okay, they came upon Aaron, and they said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up to Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Okay, the story checks, all right? All right, so Moses is like, okay, all right, all right, I'm liking my people less. You're doing okay, Aaron. You're on the up and up with me. And then he says this, so I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire, and then out came this calf. All right, does that one check out, right? He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Nope, doesn't check. You're wrong. It's not, it's not what happened. And Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron let them get out of control, and so they became a laughing stock to their enemies. So he said, sorry, so he stood at the entrance of the camp, okay? In the door, in the doorway, Moses stands there and says, whoever is for Yahweh, come to me. That's like the most pressurized ultimate vote, right? I mean, I've been to like business meetings and things like that, or something's going on, like, hey, should we do like red carpet, blue carpet? Hey, listen, if you're in favor of blue carpet, stand up and move over here, right? It's not just like a shy, like, oh, yeah, sure, that sounds good. You're gonna move. You're gonna move into this camp. You're gonna, you're gonna move outside of the camp with me. And it says, and all the Levites rallied to him. All right, so what's going on? There was clearly some kind of mob mentality, some mob people who were trying to get this thing to happen and get this calf and this idolatry to happen. But the Levites didn't want anything to do with it. They said, no, we've already been called and separated to do the work of Yahweh, so that's what we're gonna do and it, clearly there was other people, as we're going to see in a minute. I love here what Stuart says again. Here was an old covenant, watershed instance of being for Yahweh. The only God who could save. All right? You're going to be for me. You're going to be for Yahweh. Or for an idol that cannot save and can only distract from saving truth. So Moses positioned himself in the entrance, the gate or the gateway of the camp, so as to symbolize standing at the dividing point between Israel and non-Israel, and said, whoever for Yahweh to me. Oh, that's, that's the language. <laughs> There's no verb is and no verb come in this verbless clause of the original. Whoever for Yahweh to me. We're like, this, we're gonna do this right now. And he said to them, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Each man, each Levite, strap a sword to his side and then go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, killing his brother and his friend and his neighbor. All right, Levites, those who are for God, for Yahweh, you are to go back into the camp and kill anybody who you know is implicit in serving this false god. Whoa! That's, that's intense. Right? When I started reading this passage earlier this week, I was like, oh, cool, this is like a, this is an easy one, right? And then I get here and I'm like, whoa! Here we go again. It says here, the Levites did as Moses commanded and that day about 3,000 of the people died. And Moses said, you have set apart to Yahweh today for you 
were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. I want to, again, just read from Doug Stewart on this topic, because I think he, he really helps us understand. The same way that we looked at this during Holy War. What is Holy War? Guess what? It's not a thing anymore. Okay? It doesn't, doesn't function, but God was doing everything he could to keep his people alive who were going to be part of the redemption story. If Israel's cut off, if they're defeated, they're destroyed, then we're not sitting here today. Okay? Let me read what Stuart says. God made it clear to Moses, this is what the Lord says, that those who, were to, those who committed the idolatry had to be cut off from Israel. A modern person accustomed to the sentimentalism, sentimentalism, okay, sentimentalism, sentimentalism of Western liberal thinking might find the idea of killing idolaters impossible to justify. Moses, on the other hand, understood that leaving idolaters in the midst of Israel to influence others away from the opportunity for eternal life was impossible to justify. God revealed to him that a fight was underway over saving Truth. He goes on, if the idolatry were allowed to continue, many people in ancient Israel would have turned, would turn from saving truth to condemning falsehood, from the promise of eternal life with God to destruction and hell. And since Israel was the repository of God's saving truth at this time, they had all the information about Yahweh and how he was going to redeem mankind. They had all of it. Allowing the idolatry to continue might have affected the potential for eternal life of countless, countless of future generations of Israelites and Gentiles alike. Moses' actions, as described in this passage, are not to be copied imperialistically, right? He's saying, don't, like, don't do this. Someone disagrees with your belief system, doesn't, right? He's not saying, oh, according to this passage, we can just pull out swords and start killing people. Nope. They tried that in uh, the, the uh, Crusades. Didn't, didn't work out for us, okay? Or anybody. Right? Murder is not good. Yahweh here is saying we're saving salvation for all people. And this is never to be repeated unless I order it. And the new covenant does not allow for killing as a means of preservation of orthodoxy. All right, redemption. What goes on? What happens in this final step? The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to Yahweh and perhaps, uh, Moses doesn't know, perhaps, like, perhaps I can make atonement. Perhaps God will say, hey, we're gonna even this out again, I'll forgive him. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back up to Yahweh and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sins. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. Hey, if, if you're still gonna send all these people to, to hell, God, then you, you need to send me there too. And his commitment there was to the redeemed people of Israel. And Yahweh replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go. All right, so just, just, the, just the guilty parties. Now go. Lead the people to the place I spoke of. But he says, here, my angel will go before you. How many times has he said, I will go before you, I will go before you. Here he says, my angel will go before you. However, when, you, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sins. And Yahweh struck the people with a plague 
because of what they did and with the calf that Aaron had made. We don't see necessarily of any death happening. That happens again when David sins. Um, that's some kind of plague, some kind of ailment. Uh, that's all we have. There's not really a lot of information more on that. Then Yahweh said to Moses, leave this place. You and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go to the land I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. And I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites and Amorites and Hittites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Right, here's Yahweh already saying, you know what? Okay, I'm gonna forgive I'm gonna show grace and mercy and we're gonna still have this inheritance. I'm still gonna go through with what I promised. But he says, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. They go into a funeral-like state and no one put on any ornaments, any decorations. Right? There's some reason why even in our cultures where we still were, were black and are, and are very modest when it comes to funerals, it's exactly what they're doing here. For Yahweh had said to Moses, tell the Israelites you are a stick-neft people and if you were to go, if I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped of their ornaments at Mount Horeb. One last quote. Disappointed, afraid, ashamed, rebuked at these distressing words, the people mourned. God himself speaking through Moses commanded them to mourn and saying, now take off your ornaments. I'm going to skip down here just last. By reason of God's words, they knew that their God had partially rejected them. And they felt the impact of the rejection and they go into mourning. I want to look at some gospel implications and I don't want to rush into this. I know I'm already getting a little long-winded here, but some gospel implications, then we'll get to gospel application. But some implications of just going through those same things of, of, of idolatry or, or rejection and then mediation and atonement. Redemption, this idolatry, right? Do we do this? Right, we, we looked at, man, these guys made this, this idol. They made this thing, and it's this, this dumb idol. It doesn't even do anything. But, he, but that, that quote that I read of, like, but yeah, this, this thing represents something that I can see and touch and taste and feel. And God, well, man, you're not really there when I call for you. But this thing is. And we've all been there. Want to know why? Because we're human beings. And so we've chosen sin over God. Romans 1 says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who surpass the truth by their wickedness. That was everybody in this room, present company included. Since what may be known about God, I read this last week talking about God's beauty, he displays his beauty and his creation. What has been known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so the people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as their God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. The apostle Paul is writing that to you. 
but it's exactly what the Israelites did, and it's exactly what I do every day. And when I choose the sin, I choose the suffer. And when I continue to sin, I continue to say, God, nope, you're not worth it. I'd rather have this thing here in front of me. God says, therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts and sexual impurity, the degrading of their bodies with one another. They're exchanging the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than a creator who is forever praised. The apostle Paul here is not talking about idol worship. He's talking about things that are good. God, I, I can't see you. I don't have a direct line of sight to you, but you know who I do have a direct line of sight to is my family, is my hobby, is my music, sex. It's good. God created it. But do we worship that thing, the creation, the created thing, rather than the creator? I was reminded of the C.S. Lewis quote. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know what I'm pleased by? You know what I got uh, incredibly convicted by? Um, yesterday, I got a text from Pastor Steve. And he said, uh, as you're doing your sermon prep, which I was right at that moment, which was kind of weird. He says, you're doing your sermon prep today against idolatry. Don't let preaching be an idol. <laughs> but you're not too late, right? Because I, I, got, I got some time to repent here. Right? Because I, I love doing this. Like I do, like this brings me joy. But this joy sometimes, unfortunately, is my way of making mud pies in the slums. I'm too easily pleased to think that preaching in a 95 degree, 99% humidity building somehow brings me more joy than when I follow after Christ and my heart is completely committed and devoted to what he has for me. I'm far too easily pleased, and so are you. No offense. Moving on, a greater mediator than Moses is here. A greater mediator than Moses has already come. Hebrews chapter three, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, those who are believers, those of you who have bowed the knee to Jesus, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself for every house that is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ, Christ is faithful as the son, right? There's the builder, there's the house. He's saying, no, Jesus, Jesus is the faithful servant. He is God. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidences and hope in which we glory. That as we look at the cross and we see this bloodied image of the son of God, I want you to remember what Moses said. God, 
If you're gonna send them to hell, send me with them. And Moses said that he was willing to suffer for his people, but the person who's greater than Moses actually did suffer and didn't just go to hell, he saved people from hell. He's awesome. Last thing, atonement. Christ gives atonement. He provides that way of forgiveness. So in this story, you've got God who's been sinned, clearly sinned against. You've got Moses the mediator and you've got the sinner. And now in our context, you still have God who is holy and just, who says, I need payment. And Jesus shows up and he says, I can pay that. I'll take the punishment for the stupid thing that Brian did. And I was reminded of a, of a story. Uh, this was uh, me 10 years ago, actually. <laughs> I looked like the guy on the right uh, more, probably, but uh, it's not. It's my, it's my big bro. Um, and, uh, and, and one of my best friends, Matt Brown. So growing up, Matt Brown and I, um, were, we, are just, we are always together. It was probably stupid how much time we spent together. But it was Chicago... Uh, we would just ride our bikes, you know, halfway across the city to each other's house because you could do that stuff back then. Now, I wouldn't let Henry leave my sight. <laughs> so anyways, my big brother, my, my brother and my dad are downstairs working on the plumbing, on the house, some, something, in the, the bathroom, and they, they've got something open, okay, that normally isn't open. And so my brother came into the room, gave me explicit rules, Matt Brown and I are sitting there, right, playing, I don't know, Madden or Metal Gear Solid, just some video game. He comes in and says, here's the rule, here's the law, do not flush the toilet. That's it. You got one job. You got one rule. Playing games, Matt gets up to go to the bathroom. His name is Matt Brown, and my brother's name is Matt, so it gets confusing. So it's brown and silver uh, is what we always refer to them as. Now they're best buds, kind of fun. Anyways, Brown goes to the bathroom, comes back, and what do we hear? Right? Angry Matt, storming up, furious, right? You broke my rule. And it was an easy rule to follow. And he's, he's gonna kill one of us. And, and Brown just looks at me, and I just said, it was me. Right? And I took the beating for my, for my buddy. Because right? I, I knew, which is stupid, because my brother probably wouldn't have beat up this kid, right? I mean, he, but he would have beat me up, and he did. And that's just what happens, right? And in this context, I know it may sound silly, but God is saying, hey, I have shown you myself. I've shown you my love. And there's a mediator whose name is Jesus, and he takes that punishment that is well-deserved for you. And he takes it upon himself. And sometimes may walk away with, with this, and I, and I love here, one last quote. I think I said that already before, but one more. Nor do we have a portrait of a vengeful, stern-faced God. So don't view God the Father as an angry brother who just got some kind of bodily fluid dumped on him, unnecessarily angry. That's not, it's not, the, it's not Yahweh. We do not have a portion of a vengeful, stern-faced God who continually needs to be persuaded not to wipe out his people. The God described here is not one who is prone to turn on his people at any moment so that they had better walk on eggshells. Reflect for a moment on chapters 1 through 31. I love that. 
just remember everything that he has already done and is still doing for them. Israel's deliverance from Egypt is a response to a promise God made to the patriarchs, the defeat of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, and the triumphal march out of Egypt and up Mount Sinai are all climactic moment in the realization of that promise. Something big is happening here, and as we've seen, something bigger has already happened. And it's continuing to happen. As I've mentioned before, the strong man was bound at the cross, that Christ crushed the head of the serpent, and now the gospel has the authority and power to go forth into the world and change lives. So gospel application, this last slide, that's it. Idolatry should move us to worship. Should move us to say, yes, you are beautiful. Because, why? Wow, you sent someone greater than Moses. You sent your son. There's been atonement made. You've taken my disgusting, filthy rag sins, and Jesus has said, oh, I'll take it. I won't just take your sins upon me. He became sin who knew no sin. I'm also going to take the wrath of God on me. And then at the same time, I'm going to impute my righteousness on you. God has given us a way of redemption. If you haven't done that yet, please, today is the day. And again, like every week at Lower Town, we have communion. We'll have uh, gluten-free options over here, but the bread that represents the broken body of Christ, the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was spilt for us, this is it. This is how we made the way with Christ. And so I want us to take a moment. If you're a follower of Christ, I'd love to have you uh, have communion with us tonight as a community, as a body that remembers who Christ is and what he has done for us. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Yahweh, God, I thank you that as we come before you now in a time to reflect and to pray and to sing and to, and to viscerally taste and remember not necessarily our sins of, of eating the gold, but of viscerally remembering the Passover meal and remembering what you did, what your son did when he took on flesh. And in that moment, he became sin who knew no sin. Why? So that we can become sons and daughters of righteousness. There is no more beautiful story. So God, hear our prayer, hear our songs, and be honored and glorified as we sing and as we eat. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.